What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Combo Church Podcast. My name is Craig. And my name is Kara, and we are the lead pastors of Combo Church. If you are listening on combochurch.com, iTunes, or Spotify, make sure you subscribe, follow, and like. We love it when you share with your family and friends, and we would love it if you could leave us a great review. Our prayer for you is that the message today will inspire purpose, encourage life, and build faith in you. Enjoy Enjoy the the message. message. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. And in this little uh, mini-series we've been doing, the first week, we talked about the power of the gathering. Um, There's no real power in a building that we call a church. There is power in the people that we call a church. There's power when we gather. There are things that we miss out on that God has designed us to experience when we forsake the gathering. There are things that can only happen when we gather together. Here's just a couple of them, just to kind of rehash. Communion can happen when we're together. Sharing life together. It's kind of hard to share life when you're not with somebody to share it with. Operating within our gifts to serve one another. Transfer of strength and faith and courage and spiritual life. Um, God's authority resting on the place of worship. It, It creates the atmosphere where the manifest presence of God shows up and begins to work among the people. Those are some of the things that happen when we gather together. Last week we talked about the power of the invitation. How many of you are grateful that we serve a God who is continually inviting us in? That he he made room for you. And I'm convinced that if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have done what he did for you. It's not just some, well, we just kind of blend in with the conglomerate of the world around us. No, God's heart is for you. And Jesus has made a specific place at the table for you. And if you're here, there's a great chance that you are already responding to that invitation. But it doesn't stop with our response. That's actually just the beginning because God begins to use us to extend that invitation to the world around us as well. And so everybody in here knows at least one person who needs to respond to the invitation of Christ. Amen? And so that means that we're at work. God's using us. He's trying to do stuff through us. So today we're going to talk about kind of our our last week leading up uh, to next week. And yes, next week on Easter Sunday, we will be talking about For the One, but it is going to be just an all-out evangelistic blitz to bring the gospel of salvation to people who are coming. So don't come next week. If If you're a Jesus follower, show up next week, but don't show up thinking that we're going to break down the book of Revelation for you or something like that. We're not. I mean, we're going, John 3, 16, we're swinging as hard as we possibly can. We want people to know that Jesus loves them, that he died for them, that he rose for them. It doesn't matter what their story is, their past, whether it's 10 years ago or whether it was Saturday night, that God loves them, has a plan for them, and is drawing them into his kingdom through relationship in Jesus Christ, amen? So you bring somebody with you. There are invite cards in every single seat. If you leave without one, it's because you chose to. So choose not to leave without one. Take one with you. Everybody here has somebody that you can put that in their hand and know the card doesn't say anything about Easter Sunday. You know why? Because they're invited every single week. They're invited 52 weeks a year, 365 days a year. This is an environment where we want people to know they're welcome to come. This isn't for the elite religious people. If it was, none of us would be here. We're here just to gather and worship the name of Jesus, open up God's word, and see what God will do. So today, we're going to talk about the power of reaching the one. Somebody say the one. The The power of reaching the one. There is power in reaching the one and the two and the three, right? Some of you might be one, but for some of you, maybe you've got the type of personality where people are just drawn to you. 
And that's okay. Run with that. Let God use it. That's a gift that God's put inside of you. But every single one of us has one person that we can say, man, if I could just get them in the room, I believe that God could do something. So take advantage of that. Make sure that you bring somebody with you next week. It is going to be a full house. For some of you, it might be uncomfortable. But you know what? We're going to be okay with that because we're going to continue to make room. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. I got my front row up in here. All right, so we're, we're uh, Luke chapter 15. Today we're talking about not just the power of the one, but lost and found. Lost and found. That's the title of today's message. How many of you have um, ever lost something that was of value for you, and then later, through some course of action, you found it? Like, there, there's a feeling that you experience when something that was of value to you got lost, and then at some, whether you found it or someone else found it or you moved a seat cushion or something happened, but you found what you lost. And then it just does something like, oh, man, it just, it's relieving. It gives you joy. It's, it's almost like this euphoric experience to be like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad that I found this thing. I've been looking for it and I couldn't find it, yet here it is. And for us to understand that even in the, on the probably the most emotional response that we could possibly have like that, the response that God would have over one lost person who becomes found is so, so much greater than we could even imagine. So in Luke chapter 15, we're going to kind of go through a parable that Jesus taught. And there are, there are three scenarios in this parable that are important for us to understand the heart of God, the heart of Jesus for people. And, and for us to also understand, listen, you, we can't have God's heart for the lost if we don't understand God's heart for us. Like it starts there. But if it stops there, we have a problem. It's called selfishness. It's when you find something of value, but you don't want to share it with anybody else, right? And so we want to be of people who realize where God brought us from, realize that we were not deserving, yet in our lostness, the love of God came after us. And now that we have experienced that, we get to look at the world around us and realize there are other people who are in that same condition where God found us. And God wants to use us to bring those people into a place of foundness as well. And so Jesus tells us three different parables and and a parable is, is Jesus used them all throughout his earthly ministry. And parables are fictitious stories that tell true kingdom principles. And Jesus always taught in parables because he always was bringing different meanings. And in these three different parables, there are three different focuses that Jesus is communicating so that we can understand God's heart for people who feel or are far from God. In verse 1, it starts off with a little bit of a, a confrontation. And this tend to happen frequently between Jesus and religious people. And so the tax collectors and other notorious sinners, it still makes me laugh when I think it like, those were the two descriptors they put together right there. Tax, tax collectors, the IRS, and then everybody else. <laughs> they often came to listen to Jesus teach. I love that. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain. The religious people for whatever reason, religious people will always complain when sinners get close to God. Just let that sink in just a little bit. And they would complain because he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Oh, my gosh, how dare him. So Jesus saw the opportunity, and it says that he told them this story. And here's the first one that we're going to get to right here. This is the first parable. If a man had 100 sheep and then one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it, never given up? 
And when he has found it, will he joyfully carry it home on his shoulders? And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Don't you love like the ownership of that statement? He didn't say, I found a lost sheep or the, he said, I found found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have strayed away. I love that heart, because it's the heart of Jesus just coming straight through. So in this parable, we're talking about what is lost is the lost sheep. And the lost sheep represents those who have wandered away. You can kind of visualize that if you can. Like, I don't, I don't think any of us in here are professional shepherds in the actual context, right? But we can still visualize. You got a shepherd and you have a flock of sheep. And the shepherd's job is to watch over the flock of sheep and to try to keep them together and to lead them to different places where they can be safe, where they can, uh, where they can eat, where they can be taken care of. And so it paints this picture that there's one of them that for whatever reason, got distracted, got, got its attention taken away, began to wander in a different direction from the rest of the, of, the, of the sheep. And the shepherd sees that as a problem. Because how can that happen? Like, Because I don't know about you, maybe we know somebody that could spiritually even fit into this category. Maybe you do. Maybe you know somebody that through, through distraction, through maybe, maybe they were, maybe you haven't seen them in church in a while. You're like, wonder where they are. And one week turns into two weeks, and two weeks turns into two months. And before you know, like over the last two years specifically, I believe there have become more lost sheep than ever before because there was a scattering, right? There was people didn't know what to do, like gathering stopped. People, and when you stop gathering, which is why Scripture paints such an important picture of gathering, because it keeps things together as well. He, the, the author of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together as often as people often do. It's been a problem for a long time. It's in Scripture, and we still deal with it to now. We deal with it now. But the reality is, is that when Jesus sees someone straying away, he doesn't think, oh, man, oh, that's too bad. 99 out of 100, man, that's a really good winning percentage right there. Like if you were, if you were in the MLB and you were batting 99 out of 100, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. You know, so Jesus, no, he sees value in the one. Even if there's still 99 others that are still engaged, still together, still eating, still healthy, still doing what God has called them to do, he sees the one. He's like, no, I have to go after the one who's gotten distracted, who's been discouraged, who's gotten lost, who's maybe followed something that is taking them off of the path that they should be following. Jesus goes after him. And that's the heart that God wants us to have for people as well. It's so easy for us to, to look at those that may have struggles or are questioning their faith or be, have been you know, bought into something else that is taking them in a completely different direction. And from, from, a, from being one of the 99 to sit back and be like, well, if they knew better, then they wouldn't be going in that direction. You know, we, we, can't have, uh, we can't have the impact of the shepherd unless we have the heart of the shepherd. Like God's trying to, in his church, he's trying to develop his heart inside of us. And that's only going to happen when we live surrendered on a consistent basis. Like we, we, const- we can't wake up one day and say, you know what? I feel like my heart is uh, perfected now. I don't have to try as hard. don't have to surrender as much. I, I've, I think I'm as, as good as I need to get. No, like every day when we wake up, we have to have a conversation with our Lord and Savior. We have to have that realization that says we're still not there yet. God, I need you. I'm still not where you want me to. I'm not where I was but I'm also not where you want me to be. So God, continue to work in me, continue to soften my heart, continue to work on the things in my mind that keep me uh, at odds from how your kingdom begins to operate and how you see other people. 
Like we might have our moments where we have compassion and where we see people the way God sees them, but because of our human nature, things can happen that make us change that and at the blink of an eye and all of a sudden, those that are supposed to be our passion become our frustration. One of the things we say like within our dream team is that people are our passion. And, uh, and we don't just say that, that's something that we have to work at because it's not human nature. It's human nature is people are our frustration. Let's just be real. <laughs> like the people that, that cut you off in traffic, the people that wave at you with only one finger, the people that, uh, the people who, who violently oppose you on social media, the people who say things that you're like, how in the world could you even pretend to know Jesus and say stuff like this? You know, like it's those people where God's trying to get to our heart. Because without God's heart, we won't be able to treat others around us in the appropriate way. Reaching the one means that we go after and bring them back. It doesn't mean that we sit back and we hope for the best. Oh, I'll pray for you, and then we never do. Or we, we you know, because of a disagreement that we had, I don't feel comfortable talking with them. Well, God really loves them. God will take care of it. But you know what? God created the church. God didn't create the church so that he as the shepherd could go out and bring the shepherd in and come hang out with us 99. He created the church so that as we continue to gather and worship the Lord, we continue to be transformed from the inside out from who we were into who God wants us to be. And I want, I want you to know that if you fight that, it's okay, that's human nature, right? But fighting what God wants you to be means that you are fighting the very purpose that you were created for. You will never find another purpose, another cause, another thing that will give you greater fulfillment and greater life and greater purpose than being surrendered to the will of God for your life. One of the greatest lies that exists in the world around us is when people begin to believe the, the lie from the, seriously, from the pit of hell that says, man, God's just trying to hold you back. God's just trying to throw rules and regulations at you. He doesn't want you to live life. He wants you to be a slave. He wants you to be a prisoner. He wants you to be held in a box where scripture tells us that he who the son sets free is free indeed. Not enslaved indeed, not limited indeed. Like there's, there's no life that you could possibly fathom living that is more free and more wide and more open than being fully surrendered to the voice of God. It doesn't exist. Reaching the one means we go after and we bring back the lost sheep. And then he told him another parable. Here's the second type of lost person that Jesus wants us to reach and his heart's for them. He wants us to have that heart. And in verse 8, he goes, uh, and, and this, this will seem like a, like, a, like a different turn from that first one, and it should because there's a different emphasis. And Jesus says, or suppose a woman had 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So, all right, context, big deal, a coin. Like mo most of you walked over a half a dozen of them from your car to the front door. You're like, great, like, I'm not bending over for anything below a quarter, okay? <laughs> and I'm really trying to keep my eyes out for paper. Anybody dropping paper around here? You know, I remember back in, maybe you don't, remember back in the day, like, I'd stop traffic for a penny, right? But like, I was back in the day. Now it's like, well, my back's kind of sore, so, you know, maybe somebody else wants that. So we're like, what's, what's the value of the coin? What's even the big deal? So here's, here's the context, right? We have to remember when you read scripture, when we interpret scripture, it can't mean to us what it didn't mean to the original readers. We have to understand that in the context. That's how you end up with bad theology is we take scripture and we make it mean what we want it to mean. 
That's not how you do that. That's how you do dumb stuff. That's how you come up with really dumb things that hurt a whole lot of people. Scripture has been used to justify some ridiculous things over the course of history, and they quoted Scripture from it. But if you don't understand where it came from, then we'll apply it in the wrong places. So, so we got to understand, what, what is going on with the coins? So his, historically, again, Jewish culture, Jewish religion at that time, a woman would, from her dowry of getting married, would receive 10 specific coins, and they would be put onto a, basically what was a, it looked like a necklace, but she would wear it on her head when she would go out in public. And that was the, the symbol of her marriage. And that, that was the symbol of, and the value that, hey, this, this woman is married. She's got, you know, the, she got the coin thing going on with the hat and the coins. So we know who she is. But here's the other thing. If she lost coins, she would also lose the value in public of her marriage. And in some places, they would go as far as to even remove the legality of her being a married woman. In that culture, that was substantial. And so if you lose one coin, it wasn't like, you know, well, I got 90 cents left. I don't have a full dollar. No, we're not talking about dimes here. We're talking about somebody's value in society. We're talking about the way that somebody would see them and receive them as who they were. It would literally lose her position in society, which was not our century of, you know, like women are doing things that women from generations past have only dreamed about, right? And that's a great thing, by the way. Back then it was not the case. Like your identity was wrapped up in the fact that you were married and had a man that you were married to. So to lose one coin could be devastating. So now it paints the picture of the value of that coin. That's why if she lost the coin, she wasn't like, well, we'll look for it later. She's like, nope, it's middle of the night. I'm lighting lamps. I'm getting my friends. I'm turning this house upside down. We're cleaning everything because I have to find this coin because in the morning I can't go out into society without this coin. That's how valuable it was. Now here's the interesting thing because in every parable you'll see kind of two, two main character dynamics. In this one, you have the woman and you have the coin. Now, the coin itself had no idea that it was lost. The coin didn't fall off her head, off of the piece of jewelry, land on the ground, and was like, hey, (laughs) I have no arms and legs. Help me out down here. I'm a lost coin. You know, it doesn't doesn't work that way. Like, the coin literally had no idea that it was lost. Okay, let's, let's tie this together. There are people who are lost who God loves, whom he died for, whom he rose from the dead for, whom he has plans for, whom he created them with a specific purpose, who are walking around in the world around us completely unaware of the fact that they're lost. Sometimes from the, from the church world, we can look at the world around us and just assume that everybody knows the Jesus thing and that the way that they're living is a choice. They're just choosing to rebel against God. Wow, they're evilness, man. They must really hate God. The reality is, Most people have no clue that they're walking around lost. They think the life that they're living is just the life that they're going to live. They have no idea the purpose and the life and what they could experience when they come to know their creator and their God and their savior and the life that it will open up. They have no idea. And so what's our responsibility? And that's what Jesus is getting at in these parables. What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to turn the house upside down. Our responsibility is not just to sit back and be like, well, you know, they're, you know, maybe the grace of God will catch up with them. You know, again, just this passive not being involved. I'll pray for the lost. But again, we don't really pray for the lost. If you, if, when you pray for the lost, if there's not something that's connected to the heartstrings inside of you, you're not praying for the lost. You, you don't understand what you're praying for. That's because when that happens, that's because we don't quite have the same heart that God wants us to have for the lost. 
Years ago, I started praying this super dangerous prayer, and I dare you to pray it. I said, God, would you, would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? There's a beautiful worship song that came out back in those days. We're singing it, break my heart for what break. And you know, I'm singing it, and you're like, yeah. And then one day, I just felt the Holy Spirit saying, really? Do you really want me to? And I was like, yes, I want you to. Yeah, sure. I don't see What's the worst that could happen, right? You know, people saved. And I literally started adopting that into my, my prayer life. And you know what happened? God rocked the snot out of me. He actually did what I prayed for. He gave me his heart for those that were lost. And I tell you what, it hurts. It hurts. It's painful because you don't see people from a place of frustration. You see them from a place of grace. You don't see people from a position of everything they're doing wrong. You see people from a position of what they could be in Christ. You don't see their mistakes as like, man, you should have known better. I hope you learned your lesson. You see their mistakes and your heart breaks because they don't know that they're lost. And God is calling the church. He's calling you. Let's personalize this. This is not the calling of like someone who's got an evangelistic calling or an outgoing personality. No, it is your responsibility. It is my responsibility. Last week I talked about how we are all called to invite. And I use that word on purpose. We are called to go out and to connect with people and let them know there is a seat at the table for them. Which is why as a church, as we continue to grow, we will do whatever it takes by the grace of God to continue to make room for the people of our region. Because that's what God called us to do. And on top of that, we're also going to make sure that God would use us to turn our region upside down to help find out which is lost. <clears throat> we have to search. We have to search for them. There's, there's nothing passive about that word. Like if you lose something at home of value to you, uh, like guys, let's, let's be, this could be anybody, whatever. When you lose, <laughs> this is the worst analogy ever. When you lose the remote, and I know some of y'all, you just talk to your TV, you're like, TV, channel this, whatever. For us regular people, who still have to like, you know, point and click something because that's really hard. Does anybody remember when you actually had to get up, walk to the TV, turn it, you know, turn the clicker thingy? Okay. Some of y'all laughing, but you're just faking it. You don't even know. There's like three people here. That know. If there's a game on and I lose the remote, I'm not just going to be like, well, oh, well, I'm sure it'll be fine. No, I'm moving cushions, I'm turning stuff, I'm blaming my kids, I'm doing everything. Because it was probably their fault. Anyway, so, no, we're going to turn, we, God wants this church, God wants every church who preaches the name of Jesus, that believes in the Bible, that needs the power of the Holy, he, he's calling all of us to turn our region upside down. We are not meant to just sit back and watch everything go to crap, blame other people, and do nothing about it. There, there is a, there's, there's not much gray lines left right now. And it's not, like, that God is beginning to draw very clear lines in the sand in this day and age. And it's not so that we can get on one side and look at the other side and just, <laughs> bunch of dirty, rotten sinners. The heck? No. And so that we can see who God is calling us to go after. Okay. I wasn't ready for the clap. Okay. But I'm glad. I'm glad. Maybe God's, God's working on us. Um, 
<laughs> Jesus says something really pointed um, when it comes to how the world sees him. And because of how the world sees him, it gives us an idea of how the world will see us. And when I say us, I mean the church. I mean those who are choosing to willfully follow after Jesus and do these type of things. Jesus said in John 15, he says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Like these are words of Jesus. These are, <laughs> these are strong words. He didn't say dislike. He didn't say like they kind of don't like you. He says hate. You have to remember, like we are in Passion Week. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is in, in, in the chronological order of Passion Week was the day that the victorious triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Like he knew what he was stepping into. Nobody else knew. He came in, and they're like, he's riding on the donkey. He's coming in as a victorious king, which was pretty actually controversial, and given the state where they were under Roman Empire rule, and everyone's bowing before laying palm branches, worshiping him, saying he's the king of kings, the conquering kings. Hosanna and the highs are welcoming him, which on the outside are like, wow, this is a good moment for Jesus. But just like in our own world, public opinion changes pretty fast. All it takes is one news cycle, one tweet, one opinion that gets out there, uh, one documentary that gets released, and all of a sudden we're ready to crucify somebody that a week ago we were just praising. And Jesus says, um, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of this world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. You're like, yay, so encouraged. The world hates me. <clears throat> But here's what we have to understand. If you said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a reason why he hasn't beamed you up to heaven yet. Because you've heard it, and there's stickers on people's cars in different places. We're, we're not of this world. But where are we? We're in it. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. That means that we're not supposed to separate ourselves from the total existence of the world around us. We're supposed to live on mission in the world that we are no longer of. We are bringing something to a lost world that we used to be a part of, but we no longer are, but we're still in it. Like there's a reason why we're still in it, church. There's a reason why God has not zapped us up to heaven every time somebody says yes. And maybe that would be a better strategy because people would be like, where's Johnny? Oh, he said yes to Jesus, so he's gone. Like, oh. <laughs> maybe we should take this seriously. Now he left us here for a reason. He left us here for a reason. And um, we're going to continue to be a church that turns our region upside down to reach the lost. And, uh, and it's not, listen, please listen, this is so important. And no, we're not going to start scheduling evangelistic events every month. I'm so sick and tired in the church world. Ugh, boom, throw the hat down. I'm so sick and tired in the church world of us assuming that everything kingdom that we do has to be some planned scheduled event on a church calendar. Just go live your life as a Jesus follower. You know where your evangelistic event is? It's when you clock in on Monday. It's when you go get coffee at Starbucks. It's when you sit down to have a meal with your family. You are on mission. Pastor, does your church have a heart for the lost? Yes, we do. When, when, when do you guys do evangelistic outreaches? Oh, man. Like, I don't know, when you wake up on Monday. That's, that, do you hear my heart? That was a little frustrated, but you hear my heart coming through on that. Doesn't mean that we won't do things, but I'm, we, can't, we can't be so program-minded in the church world, which also is based on an assumption <coughs> that pastors do all the work. 
My job and our pastoral team's job is not to go out and do the work, it's to equip you to do the work. The church becomes something it was never meant to be when everybody sits back and watches three or four people do all the work. That's not what it's supposed to be. We're going to open up the Bible. We're going to challenge the mess out of you. We're going to find the stuff in your life that you don't want God to touch, and we're going to expose it so God can touch it, so that God can get his hand on it. And so the, through that, we can go out and reach the lost. Did you, could you tell that? Okay. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. No, just kidding. Some of y'all too old for that. Anyway, here's the last one, and I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase this one, not because it's not powerful enough to read. It's it's actually the most uh, in my life. It's been the most dynamic of the three parables. But you would be maybe you would be familiar with this. It's it's the one where he's talking about the prodigal son, and the prodigal son was the individual who who he had. You know, it paints a picture of this father. He's got two kids, two sons, and one of them comes to him one day and says, "Hey, dad, guess what?" I want, my, I want my portion of the inheritance, and I want it now. Already you're impressed with this kid, aren't you? <laughs> you're like, what a great kid. And so, but for whatever reason, the father says, okay. And he divides his estate between his two sons, and he gives that portion to the son. And it says that that son takes off with the, the wealth <clears throat> that he's been given, and he spends it all and wastes it all on parties and wild living. And it says, and after that, a famine strikes. And then the famine strikes, and he's become so poor, and he's starving to death. And so he goes and ends up picking up a job feeding somebody's pigs, which in the Jewish culture would have been the biggest slap in the face, like bottom, like rock bottom. And he was so hungry, it says that he got to the point where even the stuff he was feeding the pigs looked like something that he would want to eat. And so he began to talk to himself, out, kind of like, you ever dialogued with yourself out loud? Like, it happens. It happens. And he says, man, what am I doing? Like, even, even at my dad's house, like, the hired servants have leftovers and food. They are way better off than I am. And so he begins to, he's like, man, I just, I need to go home, but I got to come up with a story first. So it says, he kind of says that he begins to put this thing together, like, dad, I'm not, I'm an idiot. You're great. I'm not. You're the best. I'm the worst. You know, like, he's trying to put this whole thing together and be like, I know I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy. You know what? Don't even, ref- don't even think of me as a son. I just want to be one of your, one of your servants. I just can't continue to live like this or I'll die. And it says that he began to go home. But as he got closer to home, it says that while he was still a far way off, it says the father saw him. And he didn't just see him. You ever had that moment where like, maybe you came home a little late after curfew and you know, mom or dad was you know, waiting for you and it wasn't necessarily this kind of reception that you received when you got, you know, so it's, it's that thing where like, you know, the, he comes home and it says a father saw him from a long way away and ran after him. He didn't run after him with a baseball bat. He didn't run after him to clothesline him and drop him. He didn't run after him to say, I told you so. He ran after him and he says, he, he yelled to his servants and he says, quick, get my robe, get my ring, get my sandals, put it on my son because he was dead, but now he is alive. Get the fatted calf, it's barbecue time. Everyone's like, yes, yes, praise the Lord. It's barbecue now. Like there was, there was no expense that the father wanted to spare to welcome a son back home that was once lost and considered dead. Here's something that we gotta understand because you know, again, Jesus is speaking 
with language and nuances within a story that the culture would understand. In Jewish culture, see, when I was growing up, if you were around enough family and you went out and did something stupid and came home, like your relatives were going to beat your tail before you even got home. And then you're going to get, you know, the next tail whooping once you got home, right? Like some of y'all understand, some of you are like, that's, how, how dare you be raised in that abusive environment? No, I'm, I'm doing just fine. <laughs> but you got to understand, like, in the Jewish culture under Mosaic law, literally disrespecting your parents was a capital offense. It was a capital offense. It was a death penalty. You're like, thank you, Jesus, for today, <laughs> for the day in which we live, right? And so the father would have known that if his son was returning, that even if he wanted to come home, there was a chance he never would have made it home before he even got a chance to see him. And this, this son wasn't gone for weeks or months. Most theologians would even say that it was probably in, this, in the case of two to four years because he had to spend a lot of money because his father was very wealthy. And he had, he had to waste that. He had to go out and get a job and, and the famine hit. So for years, it paints this picture that every day the father would go out and keep an eye out. Maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day. I wonder if I see him. Nope, not today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try again tomorrow. Until it finally came to the point where he went out one day and he, he, saw, he saw something down the road. And I don't know, maybe he, maybe he recognized the walk. Maybe he recognized the way that he was even moving. He's like, that looks like, wow, that looks like that could be my son. And it says that he, began, he took off. And let me tell you, in that culture, men did not run. It was very undignified for men to run. They're in their robes, you know, this kind of, maybe kind of like awkward or whatever. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't run around. They weren't running for anything. And it says that he ran. He would have had to like take his robe and kind of like pick it up and just go after it. And you know the reason why he was yelling at his servants to bring the ring and bring the robe? It was because he wanted to make sure that he put his authority back on his son and it saved his life from death. Because that, that signet ring of the family represented the authority of that father. It represented the covering of that father. That robe being placed around that son represented the father saying, you don't touch my son. Does he deserve it? Yeah. But the law says, yeah, but I'm putting my, I'm putting my robe around him. Don't touch him. As a matter of fact, we're going to throw a party. We're going to celebrate the fact that this son was dead and is now alive. How many of you are here? <clears throat> like, this is the one I identify with. Because I remember a season in my life where, man, I, I wasn't honoring God with my life. And I knew him. I knew God. I had experienced the goodness of God. For a short period of time, I, I really disrespected who God was in my life. And I haven't deserved anything that God has given me. Yet God in his goodness and his faithfulness ran after me. And he put his ring on my finger. And he wrapped his cloak around me. And he says, you're my son. We're going to throw a party. Come on. Fatted calf. It's barbecue time. We're going to celebrate. Now here's the thing. In this parable, there's a third character. And it's the other brother. And so often it's the other brother that in our world today, <laughs> the church acts more like this other brother than it does the father. Other brother is faithful. He didn't, he didn't take the inheritance and go out and squander. He's faithful. He served his dad, served the family name. As a matter of fact, when the son was coming in, the party started, he was still out in the field working and serving and helping. And he sees all the commotions. like, what's going on? One of the servants says, oh, you didn't hear it? Your brother's back and your father's 
uh, slaughtered the fatted calf and we're throwing a party and he put his ring on him, put his robe around him. And instead of the brother going, oh my gosh, thank God, I've been concerned. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. Throwing a, like I've served him my entire life and he's never once thrown a party for me and my friends. And I see that more in the church world today than we see the heart of the father. And it's ironic because just about every one of us at some point was either a sheep that wandered away, a coin that got lost and didn't even realize it, or a prodigal that ran away from the loving grace and, and of our Father. But in every single instance, God says, no, I want to turn the world upside down. I'm going to run after you. And not only that, I'm going to establish this crazy thing. I know it's a weird idea. It's called the church. And I'm going to put my spirit in them. And I'm going to give them my heart so that they can continue and even multiply the efforts that exist in the heart of our Father. Guys, we, we, we've got we've to choose this. Like, we, there's, there's no going back. We can't, we can't choose to say, like, God, no, we really prefer to draw the religious lines and, and rally the wagons and let's just, you know, have, our, have our, like our church social clubs and all we ever do is, you know, just keep to ourselves and pray for Jesus to quickly return. And that's just what we do. God's like, that's crazy because that's not what I do. That's not what I do. When we gather as a church, Reason number one is to worship God because he's worthy. He deserves all of our praise. Everything that we have is a gift from God. And every challenge that we have is something that God can address. So we worship God. We glorify God. We build each other up. And then we go to the word and the word begins to challenge us. And the Holy Spirit begins to convict us, not condemn us, but to convict us of the things that are still in us that we haven't surrendered fully yet to God those little pieces of the world that we're still hanging on to, right? Maybe it's maybe we think it's, we try to write it off by saying, well, I'm not really that religious, so it's okay if I got a little world flavor up in me. And God's like, no, I want you pure. I want you pure. I want to be able to look at you and you be so pure that I can see the reflection of my face when I look back at you. God doesn't want us to hang on to little bits and pieces of the world and to justify it with his grace and say, well, God understands and, and I'm not perfect. Let's stop making excuses and let's start living surrendered. Like surrendered on Sunday, surrendered on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Are you gonna have days where you screw it up? Yeah, but that's why God's faithful because he helps us to get back up and to continue to move in the right direction. But I'm telling you, church, like I'm, I'm, I'm calling us to the table when it comes to having the heart of God in us for the lost and challenging ourselves to use the environments where God's placed us. I'm not, I'm not saying we're gonna reach the whole Convo Church and we're gonna reach the whole world. Well, I'm not really concerned about that. I just want you to reach somebody in your world. Every card in your, in your seat represents one person. Every empty seat next to you represents one person. I mean, shoot, every spot where we could fit somebody on the floor <laughs> represents somebody. Actually, that represents you because we wanna give them your seat, by the way. And, can, and if I could be honest, it also means not getting content with even the space that we have here. It's not big enough. It's getting crowded. And we need to pray that God would provide because we need to make room. And I think the moment that we get comfortable, we're like, you know what? I really like this spot. And I do, by the way. I really like this. Is really, this is comfortable. I like the size. You know, it's, there's, there's enough people to where it feels good, but there's not too many to where I kind of just feel like a small thing. 
and we begin to kind of list all of the things that we want God to know that we're comfortable with. This is what we want. As if church was a consumer product where we get to choose God and he's trying to, he's trying to meet all of our needs so that we will choose him. You like this, Pastor Rocky? Is this all right? Okay. My time's up and we're going to pray, okay? But I'm telling you, something's going to happen in the world around us. Like we don't have to continue to sit back and complain about what we see on the news and complain about social media and complain about all these other things. Like there is stuff that is incredibly concerning and stuff that yes, the church does need to start to talk about and teach about and say, this is where the word of God is. This is where we have to align ourselves. But still along with that, coupled with that, not separate, but coupled with that, we have to have the heart of God inside of us for the lost. So do me a favor, let's bow our heads, I'm gonna pray. And when we're done today, again, I'm just uh, if, you're, if you're new, come hang out with us at the Welcome to Church party, it's worth it. Hear the story, hear the history, and maybe God's calling you to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself. Maybe he's calling you to join in with a community of people that are gonna make you a, a better version of you because we're connecting you to Christ. And then through that, we get to see our region transformed. But Jesus, I thank you right now, first and foremost, that you are a God of love and grace. That every single person in this room, watching online, hearing this podcast later, God, every single one of us has been either the sheep, the coin, or the prodigal. And so we come to you today saying, number one, thank you, God. Thank you for loving us when we didn't deserve it. Thank you for chasing after us. Thank you for turning the world upside down to find us. Thank you for for chasing after us when you had to leave the 99 to find us. And so God, I pray today, Lord, that we would continue to grow in our resolve to be people who are going to be used by you for your glory. And Father, we pray for that one, and maybe the one is more than one, but people that are in our life, a family member, a friend, maybe even a spouse, uh, older kids, coworkers, neighbors, people that you have placed in our world and given us a proximity to. Lord, we pray for them. And not only do we pray for them, God, we also ask, Lord, that you would give us those moments to be able to invite and to encourage and to support and to love the same way that you did for us, God. You're so faithful. And God, we can't wait for Friday night, Lord, where we get to continue to reflect on what you did on the cross for us. Wow. Wow. And then the celebration on Easter Sunday, God we get to once again get to celebrate and party with the revelation and the realization that we don't serve the idea of the God, but we serve a living, breathing God, our Savior, our King. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you again for joining us on the Convo Church podcast. Special shout out to those who give so generously to Convo Church. It's because of you that this ministry is even possible. If you want to sow into the ministry, go to ComboChurch.com and simply click the Give button. It's that easy. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, follow, take a screenshot, and share it on your social stories and tag us at Combo Church. Thanks again for listening, and make sure you tune in to the next episode of the Combo Church Podcast.